Hello, everybody that is tuning in here. Welcome to our second installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. Today, we're going to be talking about the evolving role of genetic counselors in precision medicine. I'm your host, Kira Deneen, and we are joined by the wonderful guest, Ellen Matloff. Oh, so today, <laughs> sorry. So thank you so much for joining us. We're going to uh, give a little bit of an outline while everybody filters in before we start our discussion. So we're gonna have about a 35 minute discussion. Uh, I'm gonna be interviewing Ellen Matloff here and we're gonna do a Q&A at the end. So be sure to submit your questions during the interview in our chat here. So if you're watching via Facebook, then feel free to put them in the chat there. If you're watching through Zoom, you can put them in the chat here. And so definitely be sure to submit your questions as we go. We'll get to those again at the end. And during that, you can also keep submitting questions. So thank you to Phenotips, who's the sponsor for this series. They are the world's first genomic health record system. And so they've designed software and services that help genetic professionals bring workflow and help that workflow be much smoother. So they offer tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture and diagnostic insights. I think a lot of us in genetics know that a lot of electronic health record records aren't built for genetics and Phenotips helps fill in this gap by providing a complete suite of genetic medicine tools. So in light of the pandemic, Phenotips is hosting this speaker series where we are having conversations in genetics to continue our education as most of us are operating from home. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I also host and produce DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast and radio show. Over the last eight years, we've produced over 125 episodes of genetic conversations just like we're having today. So if you enjoy this webinar, be sure to check out the podcast DNA Today. I'm also a recent graduate joining the field in as a prenatal genetic counselor. So more about today's webinar, a little bit of background information. Again, we are talking about genetic genetic counselor's role in precision medicine. And genetic testing is a pillar of precision medicine. And it's expected that the market is going to exceed by $2 billion by 2024. And as we know, genetic testing really hits all areas of medicine. And there's a need to interpret all of these genetic testing results. Genetic counselors are at a very unique position to help fill this gap, but there's not enough of us. So we have to be very strategic how we're doing this. And to learn more about this, we're joined again by Ellen Matloff, who's going to dive into all these topics with us. For those that aren't familiar with Ellen Matloff, she is a genetic counselor and the president and CEO of My Gene Council. She's also the founder and former director of the Cancer Genetic Counseling Program at Yale School of Medicine. Ellen has offered more than 50 scientific publications in the field, is an established educator, lecturer, and media spokesperson. She's received national awards for her ongoing patient advocacy efforts. She is an outspoken patient advocacy in many areas, most notably as the plaintiff in the 2013 BRCA gene patent case that went before the Supreme Court. And this decision was very instrumental and has led to drastically lower prices of genetic testing. This makes it possible for more patients to afford this technology. Technology. And as genetic testing becomes more common and also more complex, she serves as the senior author on several publications documenting national errors in the misinterpretation of genetic testing results. From these experiences, Ellen created MyGeneCouncil and its associated digital tools that can be used. So again, thank you so much, Ellen, for joining us on this webinar. We are really delighted to have you. Well, thank you, Kira. Thanks for the great introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, Ellen, let's start out. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you entered into the field of genetic counseling? Sure. I'd love to. 
I, as an undergraduate, knew that I really liked biology. And then I took a genetics class and I loved genetics. But I really wasn't interested in taking a traditional path to become a physician. Both of my parents are physicians. I lived that lifestyle and I knew that that wasn't quite what I was looking to do. And so a genetic counselor came and spoke to my class and I was riveted by the conversation. And I went and spent a day with her in her job. And I liked it so much that my senior year in college, I spent the entire year doing an unpaid internship with that genetics team. And it really sealed it for me that genetic counseling was what I wanted to do. And so then you developed my gene council after again, having that experience of developing the Yale cancer program. Um, can you tell us about how that journey has been and developing your own company as a genetic counselor? Hmm. So my first job out of graduate school was actually a pediatric adult position in Syracuse, New York. And then I was recruited to start the program at Yale and I led that program for 18 years. And in 2013, a series of things happened that made me realize that there was really an opportunity in the marketplace. Those things were Angelina Jolie, as you remember, came out and said that she was a BRCA1 carrier and had had both breasts removed preventatively. Our referrals at Yale increased that night by 40% and never again returned to baseline leaving us with a nine-month non-urgent referral backload of cases. That is so and, long, nine months. I mean, that is a long time to be booking out. And many other programs were booking out even further. We've talked to programs even in the last year that are so overwhelmed that they won't even take a patient who doesn't already have cancer, even with a significant family history, even with a mutation in the family and they were only taking patients with a personal history of either breast or ovarian cancer. If you had colon cancer or pancreatic cancer or medullary thyroid cancer, they wouldn't take those patients at all. So this isn't just a problem that occurred in 2013. This is a common day problem that we're facing more and more as genetic testing is just exploding. And so in 2013, after Angelina Jolie, as you mentioned, there was the Supreme Court case. And once human gene patents came down and the cost of genetic testing was cut by 50%, we saw two things happening. happening. People were flooding in for testing, but instead of just getting BRCA1 and 2, they were getting 30 genes. And so it was much more complicated. And we started seeing a lot of errors that well-meaning healthcare providers were misinterpreting test results and patients were misinterpreting them. And as you mentioned, we've written over the years about some of these errors in, in interpretation and what has happened to the patients and the families. And it's not good. <laughs> you know, genetic testing is a fantastic tool, but if used inaccurately or incorrectly, it can really hurt people. And so I realized that there was an opportunity at the intersection of technology and of genetic counseling knowledge um, for a company and a company that would provide 
you know, state-of-the-art genetic counseling information to patients and clinicians based on their test result, but that would also keep them up to date over time. And you can imagine, Kira, particularly with precision medicine, how critical that becomes over time to maintain engagement and contact with those patients and clinicians. And so for people that are maybe heard the term precision medicine, but don't quite understand what this is, can we help them understand when people say precision medicine, what do they mean? Oh, I'm glad you said that because we throw that term around a lot and people don't know what it means. So if you look back in medicine, even 15 or 20 years, if you had three women who came in with a diagnosis of breast cancer, it's very likely that all three women got cookie cutter um, treatment. They may have all gotten a lumpectomy, radiation therapy, maybe chemotherapy. And then over time, testing became available to actually take pieces of those three tumors and find out which of those tumors would likely need or require chemotherapy and which wouldn't. And that's where it started, that, oh, we can look at these three different cases, do genetic testing and other testing on those tumors and figure out which patient needs which therapy. So this patient gets A, this patient gets B, this patient gets C based on the needs shown by the tumor and how we can really be smarter than the tumor. And so add on top of that, that, oh, well, patient A has a hereditary form of breast cancer, placing at her at high risk to develop not only a new tumor in that breast, but a new tumor in the other breast. When you explain that to the patient, oh, look at that, that patient may actually want a bilateral mastectomy. And maybe she'll wanna have her ovaries removed to reduce her risk of developing that cancer. And so this kind of thinking that we can look at each individual patient, each individual cancer, or in many areas of medicine, whether it be cardiac or pharmacogenetics, that rather than give, for example, every single person who presents with depression the same medication, and then wait three or six months and see if it's working before changing them to another random medication, maybe upfront we'll get good enough to do genetic testing ahead of time and to really tailor treatment, not only for cancer, not only for pharmaco, but for most areas of medicine. I think that's a really great example to use breast cancer as something that a cancer that a lot of people are familiar with and showing that we're being able to group patients into more specific groups for that specific treatment for them that is going to work better for their cancer and their genetics and other factors that play a role in this. When it comes to my gene council, what role do you see my gene council playing in terms of helping with this precision medicine and being better at using precision medicine to help patients? So at my gene council, we've developed living lab reports which are tied to a particular patient and the patient's clinician based on the both the gene and the variant found. Or if nothing is found, then it may be based on a normal result or a variant of uncertain significance. And so the information that flows in is precise to that patient's test results. And over time, 
as the field progresses, and as you well know, it's progressing all of the time, both the patient and the clinician get updates by text or email, letting them know that their living lab report has um, updated and they can log back in. At Yale, Kira, one of the problems I had as the program director was I'd be standing there in front of these filing cabinets of charts. And every time we got like a national cancer, an NCCN update on management for patients, I'd be standing in front of these cabinets thinking, how am I going to recontact 15 years of past patients? I mean, that's a full-time job in itself. It's crazy. Despite being a genetic counselor and seeing new patients. Well, and I thought it would get better once we had electronic medical records, and it didn't at all. Um, and so being able to stay in touch with patients, both present and future, but also past patients, and let them know how the field is changing, how the recommendations are changing, if there's a clinical trial for which they may qualify, if there may be support resources that are new, um, or if there's even a precision medicine that might work for them, that they can then take that and discuss it with their physician, that is the next wave. It's actually taking this genetic test information not leaving it in a stagnant PDF in the patient's chart, but keeping up with it and keeping the patient and the clinician educated as time goes on to really magnify precision medicine. And have the patient be educated so they know what's going on and they can also look at opportunities and you know, sometimes be educating their doctors and being able to keep their healthcare team on their toes and learning. I mean, as we've said, and I don't think we can ever say it enough, that genetics is changing so fast that it can be really difficult to keep up. So having this information be tailored to the patient saying, your results now mean something different because we have more research is so useful. You mentioned, you know, you have a specialty in cancer and how that can be affected in precision medicine in terms of treatment. You mentioned cardiac. What are some other areas of healthcare that is really heavily impacted by precision medicine? Because we could argue all areas of healthcare, but what comes to mind when you're thinking of the areas that are more impacted, especially right now? Mm. So certainly I would add to that list um, pediatric and a general um genetics for adults, which is where I started my career. So, you know, we would see these children come through, sometimes with very rare diagnoses, and they would have genetic testing and either you'd find nothing, or they might have a variant of uncertain significance. This platform allows us to recontact them when that variant is reclassified by the laboratory or when there's additional genetic testing available. So that even if they were tested three years ago and they were uninformative, meaning we didn't find anything that really explained the diagnosis, as you know, the testing is getting better and better all the time. And one of the things I learned in that pediatric position, I um, was very involved with the cystic fibrosis families. And I learned that no one is more invested and keeping on top of the information than a parent whose child has a genetic disease. And that instead of talking over them, talking above them, that we can explain this information to these parents in a way that everyone can understand it 
and that they want to be updated. They want that text message letting them know something has changed. I would say other areas, Kira, as you know, there's preconception genetics in terms of carrier screening. Also, prenatal genetics is changing all of the time. And there are really exciting areas, even exciting developments, even in areas like viral genomics, which we've developed a COVID-19 product because imagine if you had COVID-19 testing on March 1st, you probably would have been told that there were only three symptoms with COVID-19 and that you'll be, you'll be done with it in two weeks and don't worry, kids can't get it, pets can't get it, and there are no long-term consequences. And we, you might've also been told if you get it, there's no way you can get it again, but that's changed a lot over the last four months. So imagine if you had had symptoms and gone through your CVS testing program and that when you signed up for testing, you also got a living lab report so that you got your test results immediately on your own device. And then as our knowledge changed, you would be getting updates. So you would know what the, how the symptoms have changed. In fact, we would be sending you a questionnaire asking you what symptoms you had and how you're feeling. Are you fully recovered? Um, we now know it can affect children. Here's what to do to reduce the risk. At the beginning of this, we were telling people they didn't need to wear masks. So I think that's a real life, really tangible example of how a living lab report can impact genetics, but also any laboratory test or diagnostic test. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in that everyone on the planet is familiar with COVID at this point. And so understanding and how we've seen the developments of things that we were saying in March are no longer true because of all this inf new information we're learning and the more research we're doing. And as you said, having patients and people submitting surveys to say what their symptoms have been, we're able to collect a lot more information to bring to a point of where are we right now? And, and that's ever changing. We're never going to get to a point where we're like, oh, we've figured everything out about this disorder or this area of medicine. Now, one aspect you were talking about earlier was about pediatric genetics. And that was how you started in the field. Um, and pediatric genetics, often we are using whole genome and whole exome sequencing to find out more information. Now we're using this in other areas, but pediatrics is one that comes to mind when thinking about this technology and having so much data come out of this. Yes. How do you see precision medicine changing as we're using more and more whole genome and exome that it used to be the case that we would really start with panels and that's starting to shift a little bit where some places are maybe starting with whole exome after first year testing came back negative. It's a fantastic question. And I think that one way it's changing, both in the realm of whole exome and whole genome, but also in terms of population studies, is that if you're testing a thousand people or a thousand children or 100,000 people or a million people, as we are in all of us, there is absolutely no way that every single participant will be able to meet with a genetic counselor one-on-one -on -one, before their testing and then after their testing. That's just not going to be possible. But it is possible that they could each have an account and get a living lab report because it's scalable. That's the whole point. And I would make the argument 
that for those cases, it's as important for people to understand what testing they're not getting as well as what testing they are getting and what results, if there are results, what those results mean to them today. And also that batches of results could become available in the future. And so one potential client that we're speaking to now has this issue of what do you do when you enroll someone in a study in you know July 2020, but you don't have results available for them for a year and they haven't heard from you. They might have forgotten that they were even part of the study. So part of what we do at MyGene Council is long-term engagement and retention. So we're in touch with those people, even on a quarterly basis, just to let them know of some of the breakthroughs in genomics and breakthroughs in that particular study, um, to let them know, thank them for their participation and let them know what's coming next. So it really is a way to take participants and give them ownership of their data and of that study and not just take their DNA and say, thanks, bye. It's important to keep people engaged in the research process. I think a term we often use is having them as a partner in research. Yes, they're a patient, but they're really a partner in terms of giving us valuable data so that we can then help other people. And the more information we have, the more we're able to tailor treatments and have this medicine. One of the questions that comes to mind when thinking about whole exome, whole genome, this is expensive. I mean, we mentioned that genetic testing is as cheap as it's ever been, but that doesn't mean it's very cheap, especially when you're doing sequencing of so much, you know, genes and all the data that's coming out of this. You know, the question used to be who will pay for the testing, but this is starting to change. Can you explain how and why that is? Yeah, absolutely. I can remember that even 10 years ago, when a patient came in the office, the big question was, are they insured? And will their insurance pay for this test? And I can't tell you how many hours upon hours I've spent writing letters and on the phone with insurers to get that testing covered. Um, and then what we started to see is a shift that some places would do the genetic testing for free and we're seeing more and more of this, that they'll say, if you've had metastatic prostate cancer, we'll do your testing for free. Um, and I think what we'll see is that the testing will become free and it's the big data on the other side that they will monetize. And that means quite likely that even fewer people will be seen by a certified genetic specialist before their testing and that they're really going to need digital tools like ours to help them make sure that they're getting informed consent before testing and the information they need after testing. And we're going to have to really reach out to our genetic counselors on the back end to see those patients and help them understand their test results. Yeah, because there's going to be, as you said, so many more people. And, you know, we're referring to the American you know, insurance system and how all that works, because I know we have people tuning in from all over the world here today. So just to clarify on that. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, there's just, there's going to be more and more genetic testing being ordered. And there's only so many genetic counselors, and there's only so many that can be produced. We can't suddenly, um, you know, train a whole new set. There's, you know, continuous uh, training programs and students that are being trained and entering the workforce. Um, and, you know, focusing in on this 
data and why it's so important, you know, why is it valuable to have all this genomic data? How can it really specifically propel precision medicine of having this data and having genetic counselors help interpret this data? So Kira, I think I may go back to COVID-19 as an example, because it is such, um, you know, we're all really into this right now and we can relate to it. Imagine if based on underlying genetics, we could understand which subsets of the population have an underlying genetic predisposition to be, let's say, especially apt to contract COVID-19 if they're exposed. And if we knew that there's another subset of the population that has some resistance to COVID-19. And as you know, we've seen this with other conditions, even HIV, that there are some genetic variants underlying that if you carry one of these variants, you are very unlikely to develop HIV. And if we had that information right now during this pandemic, it might really help us have a more nuanced, intelligent approach to return to work and what members of our society, you know, aside from the risk factors we already know about, which members of our society should not return to work right now while this virus is still very active and which might be in a better position to be on the front lines. And what needs to change in order for us to truly see this promise of precision medicine and the new drugs being developed to have that come into play? I mean, especially, you know, if we're able to relate that to COVID-19. So I think with any of the testing that we have available right now, unfortunately, the entire focus has been on who should get genetic testing? How do we get them genetic testing? and then getting them genetic testing. And then when they get their test results back, that's the end of the process. They're followed by their primary care physician. Hopefully they do the surveillance plan or the risk reduction plan we have in place, but we don't have those people going forward. We're not engaged with them. We're not collecting long-term data from them. We're not feeding them new data um, or inviting them to clinical trials based on their genotype, that is what needs to change in order to really make precision medicine work. To have that follow through of data that is more of a long-term study than just long you, have, you have your data and you have your results and good luck. Yeah, exactly. That has been the problem. And Bringing it back to genetic counselors, we are in such a unique position to help both patients and physicians to understand this data and be able to interpret it. What are ways that genetic counselors can become more involved in helping to bridge this gap? What opportunities should genetic counselors really be seeking to contribute their skill set to all of these issues so that we can start to overcome them? Let me first of all say that I've been a member of the genetic counseling community now for 20 plus years, and I'm continually impressed with some of the skills genetic counselors bring to the table and the very complex, difficult work they're doing, seeing patients in clinics, 
you know, now by phone or by um, Zoom, they're doing incredible work. I think the problem has been that many times those genetic counselors don't make it into the C-suites of their healthcare systems or of their companies. So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, a company launched that claimed to be a genomics company. And so I went to their website and scrolled down all of the bios. And there were a lot of tech, high-powered high tech people. There were a lot of business and management people. I scrolled all the way through the list and there was a name of one genetic counselor on like page seven, but no genetic counseling presence. That makes zero sense. If you have a genomics company and you don't have a genetic counselor in the C-suite, that should be a big red flag because in terms of truly understanding the process, and understanding what the patient is going through, what the clinician is going through, what should we be thinking about in terms of privacy, security, bioethics? You need genetic counselors in those positions. You may have seen that a lot of payers are now bringing genetic counselors on board to help them figure out who should be getting different tests. That's exactly as it should be. We're it's very slowly starting to get more genetic counselors elevated to faculty positions in medical schools, but we need even more of them, frankly, in the administrative suite, helping to run things. Um, and so that's what I think needs to change, is that we need to bring more diverse people into the field of genetic counseling, diverse in many different ways that we can talk about if you'd like, but that we need to push those people back out into more diverse positions throughout the healthcare and business networks to really make this work effectively, efficiently, and correctly. Yes, I think that's very well said. I'm seeing things pop up in the chat that people are very much agreeing with you that genetic counselors, I mean, we're a relatively new field, um, about you know 50 years old in terms of our profession, but it, we're overdue for being in these positions where we're part of more of these conversations at that level and having change trickle down from there. And, and really, as you said, being involved in these companies that are, if you're claiming to be a genomics company, yeah, I'd really hope that you have a genetic counselor that are part of your leadership. And I think part of that starts with our graduate school training. So to be a genetic counselor um, in America and Canada, at least specifically, um, you need to graduate from an accredited training program. So two-year graduate program. What would you like to see our graduate programs doing differently to ensure that new graduates are equipped for these types of positions, along with interpreting genetic information so that we can really be able to impact the field much more? I'd like to see our graduate schools do several things differently. At the beginning, we can't continue to draw such a homogenous student population into the field. Most genetic counselors, Kira, are like you and me, right? Exactly. They're white women with a background usually in biology or genomics, and that's what they bring to the table, which is great. We bring a lot to the table, but we need to see more men 
We need to see more people from the LGBTQIA community, more people of color, more people of um, religious minorities and other ethnic minorities. I'd like to see more people who either have disabilities or who have underlying genetic syndromes enter the field. I would definitely like to see more students who are coming to genetics as a second career. I um, have a student who's now in one of the programs who has this long resume in pharmaceutical sales and business development. And now she's becoming a genetic counselor. Think how she is gonna like punk out the field with that knowledge, that's amazing. I'd like to see more people coming in with a business background or getting a dual MBA with their um, CGC. I'd like to see more people with technology. Oh my gosh, imagine that if someone could code and they were a genetic counselor. Yeah. I would love, based on my Supreme Court experience, to see some people who are both attorneys and genetic counselors. We do have a few of these in our field, but there is so much room at those two intersections for people who have both knowledge bases. So in terms of what I would like to see from our programs, we need to be recruiting more diverse students and we need to start much younger. So I'm in favor in starting our kind of educational outreach, believe it or not, at the elementary school level. Before students have, have convinced themselves that they're bad at science. And I find that that usually happens by fifth or sixth grade. And so investing the time and energy to go into those schools, maybe even give genetic counselors CEUs for doing it and not totally agree them, on that, right? Not cap them the way our PACs are, but to give them more credit for that work of recruiting the next generation that's going to make our field stronger. That's where we need to be. And we need to be recruiting underserved minorities, the people who can come into our field and help us strengthen this field, help us serve patients better, help us serve in the C-suites of these corporations so that we can make true change. That's yeah. what it's going to take. Yeah. For genetic counselors, in order to change, we need the people to change and the experiences. And I think you just said it beautifully of highlighting, you know, exactly why it's important to move the field forward and to be inclusive, but really highlighting how this is going to, at the end of the day, help patients, help our field grow. And it's really, you really said it very, very nicely. Um, and so people definitely feel free to throw your questions in the chat. I still have a couple more that I want to ask Ellen. So I'm going to go ahead and do so, but please feel free to add your questions into the, sh into the chat. I see a couple people talking in there. So another thing that I wanted to come back to is how genetic counselors can, you know, start utilizing our skills, as you're saying, of, of expanding into more areas with advocacy and, you know, using a lot of these business skills to, be able to talk more to the genetic testing companies. So they have these large, large data sets and we keep coming back to how important these data sets are. And in order to really get to that next level, we need these genetic testing companies to share their data. How can genetic counselors be part of this really initiative to help genetic testing companies agree and be continuing to share their data and really within genetic testing companies and with 
between genetic testing companies. How are we going to have this happen? So it's not just genetic testing companies that are collecting this data, right? It's genetic testing companies, it's big data analytics companies, it's even some of the direct-to-consumer genetics companies. They need to have genetic counselors in leadership think tank type positions so that they can understand that sharing their data doesn't take away their power, it actually gives them power. Right? Being able to share that data in some realms allows them to have relationships with researchers, with scientists, with pharmaceutical companies who all have a vested interest in being part of the solution. And so rather than have the example that we've had with some companies where they have just built walls around their data and no one can touch it, I think that people with a business background and a genetics background can help them understand that if we can share that data and open it up to more research, um, we'll come up with more solutions, which will develop more drugs or more interventions, and that it's going to benefit the entire community. It really opens up so many doors to be able to use this information. And the more people that have access to it, the more we're going to be able to do that. And so something that people may have seen in the headlines recently is the private equity firm Blackstone just acquired 75% of Ancestry.com. And that means they're 18 million consumer data. And they bought that for $4.7 billion. So that's a lot of big numbers I'm throwing around. But when it comes to, you know, big purchases like this, where data is being transferred between companies and different organizations and people, you know, I start thinking about the privacy concerns. I mean, what are the issues here for the genomics community and the consumers or patients, or, you know, we can call people a lot of different things depending on the genetic testing, but what are some of the issues that we should be discussing? So let me make another plug here that I think when we're looking at private equity firms and when we're looking at venture capital firms, that those firms often have a scientist or a physician helping them pick deals and helping them vet deals. They need genetic counselors in the private equity firms and in the venture capital firms. I will tell you that I have pitched to some of these firms myself and Sometimes I get a blank stare. No one understands what I'm talking about. If they had genetic counselors as part of their teams, they would be able to assess deals like this Ancestry.com deal and look and really vet from a genetic counselor's viewpoint, what are the issues for the stakeholders and what are the issues for the people who have given their DNA and their trust to a company like this what could it mean for them if someone now is owning 75% of the company? What walls do we have to have in place? What protections do we have to have? And also, what are the benefits? How can we really maximize the use here to help people? And I think that having genetic counselors embedded into all of these organizations would be extremely beneficial to all parties.
yeah, start having these really bioethics conversations and for these companies to think about it from all the angles that genetic counselors often do so that they are making really a informed decision, as we say a lot in genetic counseling, but making that decision so that they are protecting people's privacy, but at the same time, we're able to continue with more research. So it really is a balance when it comes to that. Um, I'm going to get to the questions in a minute here, so feel free to continue asking your questions in the chat. Ellen, I wanted to foreshadow a little bit and ask how you see genetic counselors evolving in, say, the next five to ten years, you know, to help us handle this genomic and precision medicine data in a way that is ethically sound, as we were kind of talking about a little bit, but also maximizes that potential for consumers, healthcare systems, scientists, and industry. I mean, where are we headed and maybe where should we be headed? So I think that genetic counselors will play a role not only in kind of the traditional role of, you know, bioethics and privacy, but even in terms of monetization, that we can help um, organizations understand why and when genetic counseling is a sound investment and to help bring in tools digital tools that in the last four months during this pandemic, we have seen more forward progress in the integration of digital tools and of you know, counseling and healthcare by computer than we probably expected to see in the next 10 years. So maybe one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that we can use digital tools in companies like mine to really help scale and help track and follow people long-term. And I think that genetic counselors will still serve sometimes in the roles that they've served in traditionally. I'm sure after the pandemic, they'll go back to seeing patients in person at least some of the time. Um, and we need them there. They play a critical role there. Um, but I think they will also be used by health systems to help figure out the management and strategy plans of, okay, we now know that everyone with ovarian cancer is a candidate for genetic testing. We no longer need to meet with every single one of those patients, many of whom are quite sick and dealing with treatments. We may not want to bring them into a hospital to meet with us where they're going to be exposed to more germs. Um, maybe what we'll do is have the gynionc units offer them genetic testing up front, but we'll use this digital tool to make sure that they're getting all of the informed consent they need, and then to follow them throughout the process until they can speak to a genetics professional to make sure that whether they're positive, negative, or VUS, they're getting the information they need and that as the field changes and there's more testing available, we have a way to reach back out. I think genetic counselors just need to be higher up in the food chain, making some of those strategic decisions. And in some places they already are up in the food chain. And yeah. I'm so amazed and impressed by some of our colleagues and the great work they're doing, whether it be, like I said, in insurance companies or in genomic technology companies. Um, and let's just keep that momentum going. 
Certainly. I think you, you said it very well in terms of we're always going to need genetic counselors to be at that patient care level. That is not going to change. The way they do that may change, as you're hinting at, but we're always going to need that. So it's really expanding the types of roles genetic counselors have and not necessarily you know, switching the roles, but really growing in where we are involved in healthcare. And, you know, it's becoming, as time goes, we're really involved in so many areas of healthcare. So I've kept our listeners and audience waiting long enough. So I will start asking some of the Q&A. So feel free to put your own questions either in the chat or the Q&A. There's both there. I have them up. Um, so our first question is, could you comment on racial disparities in precision medicine? Why do you think they exist? What can be done to fight these disparities? And what roles do you see GCs playing in working towards racial equity in precision medicine. So I know you talked about that last question a little bit, um, but can you speak more to you know, these disparities in precision medicine when it comes to patients more? Because we've been talking a lot about genetic counselors. So we have a lot of patients, and this is not a new problem. We no. have a lot of patients who are afraid of genetic testing. They're afraid of being cloned. They're afraid of their genetic data being used against them. They're afraid that they're coming in for one thing, but will keep their DNA and do something else with it. And here's what I have to say about that. They are smart to be afraid of that. Many of the people in underserved ethnic and religious minorities have lived through this or their grandparents or great-grandparents have lived through experiments that were done on people who were disadvantaged in society. So we need to, first of all, understand that they feel that way and to confirm that it's reasonable that they feel that way and to take the time to develop materials and really to develop empathy that I can see why you would feel this way. It's a reasonable thing to feel. And we need to, instead of banging up against them and telling them, no, 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 we don't do that, listen to them, hear what their fears are, reach them in their communities where they already get information. We need to enroll trusted advisors in those communities and help educate them and listen to their fears and make them part of the solution. Because until we draw their trusted leaders into the solution, we're gonna to continue to fail. And what we need to understand is that they, there is a reason that they are mistrustful and distrustful and that we are the ones who need to come to the table and say, we're so sorry about these things that have happened and we get it, we understand why you're feeling this way. Here's what we're gonna to do to make this a safe, fair, equitable solution for you and to bring you in as a stakeholder. And I personally think that one of the answers is to let them know you are a stakeholder, you can give us feedback, we'll stay in touch with you, we'll keep you updated, we'll be completely transparent not that we're going to sell all your data for billions of dollars and good luck with what happens to it. That's not a good solution. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's a partnership as we've talked about throughout this webinar and having that two-way conversation of, you know, the ways that was approached 
you know, previously in history of really just giving information one way of healthcare providers telling patients. And so that's really changing as it should. And, and you um, put it very nicely. Um, our next question is, do you have any advice for genetic counselors wanting to get into genomic companies or even creating startups in genetics and genomics? We've talked about how important it is to do so, but how can genetic counselors actually go about this? What would be um, your advice for really starting out and taking first steps towards being in these new roles? So I would say there are a couple of different avenues. One of them is to have a combined degree. And so if you're a genetic counselor and you have an MBA or you have education or experience in tech um, or experience in business, bringing those to the table automatically elevates you. If not, and you want to get into a genomic company, I would say really educating yourself on that company, linking with them on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, following them, understand what their planning is, and trying to get a meaningful dialogue, maybe finding a mentor in the company, maybe even doing an internship if you can in the company, letting them know what value you bring to the table. And that's complicated. I would say work your network, always work your network. See who you know, who knows someone, who knows someone in that company and continue that process. Also, don't undersell yourself. I think Kira, honestly, you're a fantastic example of this. When Kira was an undergraduate, she had already started her own podcast, was already very active on social media. It didn't matter that she was an undergrad. Like she did all of that work. Any of us can do it, especially when you're locked inside during a pandemic, you can be part of the conversation. And I would encourage that as a place to start in different communities, including business communities and startup communities. Definitely, yes. And thank you for the kind words. But I, I think it really is about advocating for yourself as well and like reaching out of, you know, I was an undergrad and I was uh, worked for you at my gene council for four years. I don't think we mentioned that. But, you know, really just getting your foot in the door in, in some way, I think that's a, a really good way to approach it. And I think social media is just, I mean, it's right there, ready to use. We're both very active on social media and have led to a lot of great connections from that. And even just being a lurker for a while and seeing those conversations in genetics um, can be really advantageous, especially hashtag GC chat for people that are um, in genetic counseling specifically. We're both on there a lot. Yes. Um, our next question is, I'm an MBA banker and master's in microbiology and studying genetic counseling, soon getting my certificate. My vision is to open a nonprofit society to spread awareness about genetic counseling in a country like India. So do you have any words of wisdom um, specifically for um, our viewer there? Boy, having an MBA and being an MBA banker and having a master's in microbio as well as genetic counseling puts you in such a powerful position. I think the nonprofit to spread, spread awareness is fantastic. But boy, would I love to get your financial creds involved and get genetic counselors on the inside of some of these private equity firms, get genetic counselors on the inside of some VC firms. That's where the money is. And I'm going to be honest with you. That's what we need. We need genetic counselors in powerful positions, giving CEOs like me who really understand the field of genetics from the patient and the clinician perspective money. 
and investing in them in many ways. So I hope you stick with it and I hope you use both of your skill sets. I think so many people in the field of genetic counseling kind of have this imposter syndrome that they don't realize that all of the skills they've had in their lives have brought them to this place and that you can actually talk about those skills and those experiences and that they can help you, whether it's a sales position or a marketing position, they all become part of your resume. Um, yeah, certainly. All these skills are very transferable as you're talking about. Yes. Um, so we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, so feel free to add your questions. Hopefully we can get to them before one o'clock. So our next question kind of goes along these lines. Um, this person writes, I have heard of genetic counselors going into biotech companies, especially those in DTC, so direct consumer, getting some backlash from other GCs. Hearing this as a student, I was taken aback considering how we are a young field and I thought would be more flexible and accepting. How do you think we can improve on that kind of environment? So we've talked about how important this is of getting into these roles, how to get into these roles, but sometimes genetic counselors don't share our views on this. So how do you think we can improve, you know, this environment as this viewer is asking? I think it's a fantastic question and I can remember when a few genetic counselors started going directly from graduate school into industry, oh my gosh, they got a really hard time. I think that I, 20 years ago, thought like, oh my gosh, what a mistake that is to go directly to industry and get no patient experience. And although that might have not been the right path for me, I'm grateful that some of my colleagues took that path and have really pushed the field forward. So I think instead of feeling like there are traditional fields for genetic counselors and then non-traditional roles, we should do away with all that kind of language and look at it as just diversification of the field and that having genetic counselors in all of these different places playing different roles is strengthening the whole. So part of it is just an evolution um, of the field but we actually need to bolster those people up and support them and be grateful for them. I mean, I've talked to genetic counselors who are in companies writing like complex medical policy. Can I tell you I would last at that position for 30 seconds myself? But I'm so grateful that I have these smart colleagues who are in there doing that hard work to improve the world for the rest of us. Let's support everyone. Yeah. And I know I've been guilty of saying, oh, traditional versus non-traditional. And I really agree. I think we should get away from those terms and say, oh, you have a clinical role or a patient facing role or using different terms to really describe what that role is. And, you know, that is the foundation of our field in genetic counseling, but that's the foundation. It's not where we are today. And I think updating our language can really help towards that. And it is great that some, you know, some of my classmates that just graduated in May, so some went right for working for genetic testing companies and aren't working with patients directly. And so this is just where we are in 2020 and where we're moving forward. So it's certainly exciting to see that that is an option. I think it used to be seen almost as a rite of passage to meet with patients. And some people may still have this view. I personally want to meet with patients because I feel like I've worked so hard at counseling skills for two years and want to do that. But everyone has their own approach to it. And I think that, you know, that's really good advice of what we can look at as a whole in the field. 
Well, and Kira, think about it this way too. If we limited the field to only people who want one-on-one -on -one interaction with patients, that actually negates a huge segment of people who maybe what they're really good at is writing policy or writing code. Maybe, they, maybe they're laboratory people and they don't like that one-on-one -on -one contact. We don't want to negate those brilliant people from coming into our field because they will strengthen our field and move the entire field forward. We need them, we want them. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's well said and really goes back to a lot of what we were talking about with how to expand the field. And if we continue this mindset of needing to be in patient care at some point in our careers, we are going to miss out on people from different backgrounds. And it is exciting to see that genetic counseling programs um, our training programs, our graduate programs are shifting in terms of what they're looking for in applicants. I think one of the first things they're looking for is that someone is passionate about genetic counseling. And as we've talked about, I mean, this can be in a variety of different settings and ways to be sharing this. So I think it's exciting to see. And, you know, there's a lot of other changes such as the GREs. A lot of programs have been dropping it this summer. And I think um, you know, that can be seen as a little bit controversial, but I think the pandemic has really brought it to go this way. So there's just so many ways that I think we're starting to diversify the field more. That being said, we need much more. Um, before I start going on too much, I know we had another question here that I want to ask you. Um, a viewer says, how do we make precision medicine more accessible to low-income communities? How do we stop it from becoming a boutique service for wealthy individuals? So that really goes along with what we were saying of looking at, you know, we've been looking at from genetic counselors, but also patients. Um, so do you have any thoughts on this? I do. And I think that genomics for a long time has really been a boutique service, and it probably continues to be a boutique service for some, particularly when you consider that for some people, their biggest problem is, where am I going to get enough money to pay the rent? I've lost my job due to COVID-19, or I'm trying to keep my family safe. I don't have childcare. My kids aren't returning to school. Getting genetic testing does feel like a boutique problem. So first of all, we need to just realize that and we need to think about how we can make genetic services more accessible. And I ran a program at Yale for 20 years that made people drive to me, park their car in an expensive garage, get childcare and come up and meet with me in person, right? So I'm part of the problem. I think realizing that time off from work, childcare, gas, paying for a parking lot, those are all barriers and that most people have a device. And if they don't have a device, most people can gain access to it or maybe we can open access ways that way so that people can learn information, not be scared of genetic testing, but also not have to take out a mortgage so they can afford to come in and do all these you know, jump over all these barriers we create. And I do think COVID-19 has forced us to see that. So that's, that's part of the solution. And let's just keep moving forward with being flexible, thinking outside of the box, 
meeting people where they are instead of forcing them to come where we are and do it our way. Yes, totally agree. And I think our, our first webinar, that's why we focused on telehealth to be able to explore is, you know, telehealth was really forced on a lot of healthcare providers because of our circumstances and the need to protect patients. So if we're thinking about how telehealth is going to be impacting us, you know, now and in the future, and once, you know, life starts to resume back to normal, how telehealth can be utilized, along with the tools that we've been able to use and like the living lab reports from my gene council. So using all of the, this technology to be able to provide for the patient more and take down some of those barriers. I think we have time for our last question before we wrap up here. Um, we have a question, Ellen, what legislation or policies do you think will improve access to genetic counseling and genetic testing? I think I know what you're gonna talk about, but go ahead. So we just talked about a few of those, like opening up telehealth, making it accessible, but also not penalizing genetic counselors or healthcare systems by paying them and reimbursing them less for telehealth and in-person services. So we need our payers to get on board. And that's where legislation and policies may step in. I think it's also time, and I know we're looking at this, of having national licensure for genetic counselors rather than state by state so that we can really open up the telehealth opportunities to make this accessible to more people. Yeah, I think very well said. And we're almost at one o'clock here. So I want to thank everybody. And Ellen, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, you're always such a pleasure to interview. We've done quite a few over the years. So I'm so glad that you could join us for this. And, you know, we got to pick your brain about a lot of different topics and, you know, specifically focusing on that precision medicine. Um, so thank you so much, Ellen. And to our viewers, you can join our next webinar. That's going to be September 17th at noon Eastern time. So definitely mark your calendars. And um, this is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have Peter Robinson do a presentation and he's going to continue our precision medicine topic and talk about the importance of deep phenotyping in precision medicine. So there's also going to be a um, feedback link sent to you. Uh, so all you viewers can put your thoughts about the webinar in there, give us feedback and what topics you would like us to cover in the future. So definitely fill that out. We really appreciate that. And you can follow My Gene Council. Just search My Gene Council. Um, they are all over social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. I think I named the top four there. Um, you can also follow my show, DNA Today. Same thing, just search DNA Today on social media. And our website is a little bit different, DNA Podcast. So thanks again. Phenotips is the sponsor of this series and you can follow them on social media. You know the drill, just search Phenotips. And that's also a great way to stay updated on our webinars. And don't forget to fill out that feedback link. We really like hearing from you and thank you for all of the great questions today. Um, and thanks again, Ellen. It was such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We've really enjoyed broadcasting this and we look forward to our next webinar again, September 17th at noon Eastern. So thank you.